0: we have made breakthroughs in reverse engineering of, you know, extraterrestrial craft. That's actually what I I sincerely believe. I think that we have the craft. I think that we've had it for a very long time. I think that we finally figured out how some of it works. I think that there's probably extraordinarily dangerous implications of understanding how that technology works. It's not just, you know, the government blocking, you know, free energy or anti-gravity machines that would change humanity. There's probably very serious implications to, you know, weaponizing those those technologies. But I think that this information is going to continue to spill out and it's gonna create a very, very interesting, you know, world for us here um, very quickly. So I think we're gonna have breakthroughs in space travel that are gonna go way beyond anything that SpaceX is doing. SpaceX is gonna look like, you know, a, a horse-drawn carriage uh, versus the tech that we actually are probably already, you know, capable of deploying.
2: A new world order is becoming clearer by the day, and in our Global Macro series, I want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts in many different fields to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of important issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guest today has been following a very different topic that we normally don't discuss on this podcast, but nevertheless, it has become very topical. And so despite being a bit out of this world, so to speak, I think we need to pay attention. And therefore, please enjoy my conversation with David Dohr. David, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today for what I'm sure will be an out-of-this-world conversation as part of our Global Macro Series. Um, Now, I first came across your work um, very recently, actually. I was uh, listening to uh, a podcast uh, with uh, you and and Grant Williams and uh, immediately I I thought to myself, "I, I have to get David on my podcast to talk about this because... It's so fascinating, and I'm really curious. And that's, as I told you just before we press record, that is the um, beauty of these podcasts: is that if you're curious about something, um, you can kind of just have a conversation with people who know lots more than than you do. So, welcome. It's uh, it's a, a great pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Niels. Pleasure pleasure to be here with you. Good. Now, since this is your first time uh, on our podcast, at least. Perhaps I could ask you to maybe set the stage a little bit, provide a bit of background context for the conversation, telling us maybe a few highlights from uh, from your own background and uh, you know what you um, what you spend time doing uh, as this is of course going to be relevant for the conversation Then we'll dive into all of the topics uh, afterwards.
0: Uh, absolutely. So by by background I'm a career trader. I started trading. I grew up in the Midwest in the United States started trading commodities as a teenager with my my youngest brother. And very soon into that, you know, not knowing, of course, anything that we were doing, you know, as as most nascent traders uh, start off that way, um, we slowly kind of gravitated to for- finding our own strategy, the things that clicked with us. And that strategy specifically is discretionary global macro. And so I've got nearly 25 years, you know, doing discretionary global macro as an investment and trading strategy. And because of that, what we found is kind of our unique space, our niche uh, within the investment world is that with discretionary macro, a large part of that is connecting dots around the world, right? It's a top-down strategy. And for us, what we look forward to find our edge is the things that maybe people are not paying attention to. And over the years, we've gotten really good at that. The conversation we're gonna have today is is gonna be a, a very interesting sample of that. I think we're the only macro guys out there talking about the 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 subject of you know galactic macro as we uh, we affectionately like to call it but yes that's been our whole career and um and we try to exploit alpha by you know finding things that are that are trending something that's important to you and and you know the topics that you cover. We look for themes that are that are trending but are not yet reflected in asset classes. And then we look for those asset classes to start moving at the same time. And when those are merging together, you have a nice kind of wave that you can ride that that others maybe were not paying attention to and didn't jump on.
2: Okay, well, that's cool. That's great. That's a really good background. Now, as you, um, as as I alluded to, maybe, and and you sort of uh, hinted at. I mean, today's topic is completely out of my comfort zone, I have to say. I don't really know much about it. It's something that I have, I would say, on and off paid attention to. Uh, I've even watched a couple of Netflix documentaries a few years ago, mostly when, honestly, my wife wasn't paying attention because I think she would have thought I was a bit crazy spending time uh, on this topic. But the other thing that's really great about the topic is that it's I think it's safe to say that most people have an opinion about it, so they either think it's real or it's not. So, um, you know, what I'm curious to know is that, has there been any experiences in your life where you may have brought up the topic and where people have kind of thought, well, David, what's going on here? Why are you suddenly talking about this type of stuff?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for those listening, the, the the topic here is is UFOs. And that's, you know, starting to become a bit more mainstream. You know, it's a topic that kind of, you know, ebbs and flows, but is becoming a bit more mainstream, especially in the last couple of weeks with the United States for the first time shooting down four things over U.S. airspace, one of which was a Chinese spy balloon, the other three of which we don't know what they are. And the Pentagon still has not provided information on those, those objects that have been shot down. And I'm not saying that those are, you know, alien spacecraft, but they do meet the definition of unidentified flying objects. And to give a little context for our background and to answer your question, yes, people, people tease me all the time on this um, until I start to present the evidence. And the, the stigma around the topic of UFOs and extraterrestrials is significant. You know, little green men hopping out of, you know, spacecraft and, you know, everybody wearing tinfoil hats. What's interesting about the history of this is that that's not a coincidence. You you have actual documentation showing that, you know, our intelligence departments, our military, they intended to create that stigma. Because when you look at the evidence, there were some very difficult things to answer. And so, I want to share a little bit about my background. I'll share a story with you that actually, you know, I haven't shared on, on any of the other podcasts yet that really kind of, it really opened up for me the, the possibilities of, of interesting things going on. So by background... This was a subject that, you know, was dinner table conversation in my family. My, my father was really into this. My dad is a, a very open-minded, but also a very serious guy. He's somebody that likes to see the evidence. He's not just listening to, you know, UFO story and, you know, takes it as it is. And when we were kids growing up in Missouri and grew up in Columbia, Missouri, and two hours away from us is St. Louis, Missouri. And for, for those listening that may know St. Louis or for those of you that don't, St. Louis has an exceptional, exceptional science museum. It's absolutely fantastic. They're known for, you know, a couple of things, the Cardinals, the zoo, and the the science center. So when we were kids, we went to the the science museum, and in their planetarium, they were doing a, a, a series, this, this piece about the Betty and Barney Hill case. This was an abduction case from the 60s, and it was a couple that was abducted, allegedly. And later they were both hypnotized. And what's fascinating about this is that they were hypnotized because they were experiencing trauma and, 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 and nightmares. They had this missing time. It was unexplainable. They weren't sure what had happened to them. They didn't allege that they were abducted from a UFO. This came out underneath the hypnosis. And, and this is where the story is going to get really interesting. So it's one of the best recorded cases that exists. And underneath hypnosis, they both told a very similar story of being taken aboard a craft. Now, the wife, Betty, told the story that she was sitting in kind of an examination room and she was able to recall seeing effectively a star chart on the wall. So much so that she drew it. So those listening, you can look it up. You can see what she drew. Now, here's where the science museum comes into this. They're telling this story and they're showing the chart of what Betty drew, okay? Okay. And she was showing what, you know, appeared to be a star map. And originally, several, you know, scientists looked at this and said, well, you know, we don't see anything that lines up with these stars. Perhaps this is her imagination. And then one investigator had a very brilliant idea. They said, you know what? We're looking at this from the point of looking out at the stars from being here on Earth. But if she's actually on a craft, she might have a different perspective. Let's start rotating star maps and see if we can line it up. And so they simulated this at the science museum. It was amazing. I will never forget this experience as a, as a kid. So they, they did this simulation, rotating it around, and, and guess what, Niels? It lined up perfectly. Now, how, how is that possible, right? How is somebody in the 60s, you know, it has nothing to do with, you know, stars or astrophysics or anything like that, drawing a star chart underneath hypnosis, that when you 3D rotate it, it looks like something from space looking back, you know, towards towards Earth. So this is kind of what started my fascination, um, you know, as a kid um, on this subject
2: matter. Okay, cool. Now, often we have, I guess, you know, we we, we get interested in stuff when we're kids, and, and at some point we, we kind of move on and do something, you know, focus on something different. Is this something that actually stayed with you, or did it also kind of... At a certain age, you can't. Yeah, okay, fine. That was fun. Went to the museum, all of that, and not really paid attention to it. And then it reappeared for some reason. Or I just want to sort of understand your journey a bit more. Yeah, it's a great question. No, just as a hobby, it's always been with me. I've always found it.
0: I've always found it a fascination. You know, I've kept. You know, kept tabs of. You know, various cases and everything else. But again that that really remained a that remained a hobby for me and a, a a general interest on the side that didn't really you know crisscross with my my professional job as as an investment manager and trader until 2017 and 2017 was a very significant milestone because this was an inflection point for disclosure directly from the United States Department of Defense and and that was the the, the crossover point.
2: Okay, cool. And you know what? What also makes it really interesting, uh, in my view, is that no one really in the investment world is paying attention to this. So I I understand your fascination with it. I, I'm, I'm very interested as well. Um, but I'm also intrigued by the fact that nobody else is uh, paying attention to it, at least, you know, in, in, in the broader investment sphere. All right. Great background. Let's uh, dive into uh, some of these topics. And I, again, since I don't have any experience with this, I kind of thought, let's divide it into two groups of, of, of questions to begin with. One would be, kind of significant events um, that we, uh, or that you know about, heard about, and whatever I've heard about, I can ask you whether you know anything about it. And then also the other interesting thing is maybe some of the key people who um, are coming forward, who've been involved in this for a while, um, people we think maybe be credible, et cetera, et cetera. So let's dive into these um, question now. I, I, I realize that some of these events were not known at the time. And by the way, I actually also think that there are some events from many, many years ago, decades ago, and I'm not really even up to speed. So if you want to bring something up from the 60s and 70s, feel free. What I found in my um, you know, short time to to do a bit of research here was kind of a, a, a certainly an important event that took place in 2004, as far as I, I can tell, but I don't think we were informed about it until 2018, and that is what's called uh, what what's been named this Tic Tac encounter. So, as I said, feel free to go even further back. Otherwise, feel free to start with 2004 and the Tic Tacs. Yeah, well, one one incident that I'll add, and, and
0: there's several, right? You know, I won't go too far into Roswell, which is the most famous case for the United States. Which, by the way, for those listening it's worth diving into and not a coincidence we'll circle back to some some conversation on this it's not a coincidence that the united states national defense authorization act of 2023 allows congress to go back and collect information all the way back to you know predating roswell there's zero coincidence about that there's 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 very serious reasons for that um and we believe that you know Roswell was actually something that took place not just a conspiracy theory but something actually took place but i think one of the incidents that people you know may not be familiar with but is well documented is in 1952 so people say well you know aliens and ufos this is nonsense if they wanted to reveal themselves you know why wouldn't they just you know land on the on the yard of the of the white house well in 1952 they they practically did they didn't land on the yard but there were sightings right over the white house in 1952 we scrambled jets to to chase them and were unsuccessful in doing that but there's a, a widely reported it was in the papers it was covered i mean this is this is an incident that is actually well known but is often forgotten about so so our incidents with you know ufo's is is not, n- nothing new now going to the 2004 case the reason that that one is so incredibly significant is because the multiple sensors, witnesses, our fighter pilots, uh, you know, Commander Favor, as well as other pilots. There was a a pilot that was scrambled after he returned that went and recorded the, you know, the Tic Tac. So for those listening that are not familiar with this, this has been on the news a lot since 2017, (laughs) which is kind of when it came out. But we had in 2004, the USS Nimitz was with the carrier fleet they were practicing off the coast, about hundred kilometers off the coast of San Diego, and what was happening is, and it wasn't just on a single day. Over a series of days, their radar um, operators were seeing stuff in this in on radar that was dropping from eighty thousand feet to fifty feet above the ocean. And, I mean, this is this is fascinating. I mean, they had you know fourteen of these things, you know, zipping from eighty thousand feet to twenty thousand feet to fifty feet. They believe that because of the the radars that they had, they believe that they were actually entering our atmosphere. Because at about eighty thousand feet, you're seeing the curvature of the Earth. You're you're practically right there, heading into space. And these radars kind of max out at eighty thousand feet, so they were entering the radar at eighty thousand feet, coming down. They also believe that these objects were coming up from the ocean and traveling back up through eighty thousand feet into space. And this is where you're hearing is some of the definitions transmedium craft. And this is the idea, you know, we have objects that are intelligently controlled that can cross from water to air to space effortlessly without creating any sonic booms and these things were pulling 12,000 Gs in in, you know, maneuvers. There's absolutely nothing, nothing that, you know, that we make that does that stuff. You know, this is this is very, very, very serious technology. And and Commander Fravor, and he actually had an encounter. He went to, you know, he was scrambled with his jets to go, you know, look at this tic-tac that was hovering above the ocean. And, you know, they get out there, and he dives down to get a closer look at it, and all of a sudden this object engages with him. He's actually on the recordings saying, oh, oh, uh-oh, I'm engaged. I'm engaged, oh, shit. I'm engaged. This is this is a very serious thing for a fighter pilot to say, especially a trained trained career fighter pilot. And what happened is the sea dove. This tic tac kind of zipped around him and started rotating at about 180 degrees around him. And um, and this is part of the you know the tic tac story. And which, by the way, I encourage everybody to look this stuff up. It's it's better hearing from you know Fravor himself than than me. But again, to reiterate, why it was so important is because you had eyewitness testimony you had radars you had multiple types of radar you had multiple witnesses from fighter pilots to people that were on the the battle carriers this is this is probably the most documented case from a data perspective and that's why it's so significant and it's it's you know it's relatively recent in you know 2004 is not it's not like roswell you know in in the 40s
2: Okay. No, I mean, super fascinating. We'll come back to to some part, parts of this. I think uh, as we move forward. Now, from what I could dig up, there is another um, case. So, uh, is it correct that we we are told about this in 2018? Did I get that right?
0: Yeah, approximately. I mean, I think it was actually technically 2017 that the videos were released because 2017 was when the Department of Defense acknowledged. Uh, videos uh, of the Tic Tac. So I believe it was actually the the end of 2017.
2: Okay, okay, cool. Now, I've also um, managed to dig up that in 2019, July, there were again on the West Coast, uh, and according to to this uh, source, uh, there were like, uh, you know, 10 unidentified ships or whatever we call them. And they were going around multiple uh, U.S. Navy ships, uh, including the Omaha. And and over a, a few days, I think there were like 100 sightings or 100 ships. Obviously, it could have been the same ships. I don't know. So do you, what, what, do you know anything about that incident? That seems also pretty, um, pretty significant. Significant. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Very significant. <laughs> so what, what's interesting is that, you know, early on, part of that story, there was kind of an attempt to explain that away because there was a a ship i believe um oh the cargo ship yeah there was a cargo ship i think with a hong kong flag or 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 something that was nearby and it was it was first a bit explained away as perhaps these were chinese drones as an example that were launched from that that ship but that does not fit at all with the actual data so there's a couple things about drones right when when drones leave they they ultimately have to kind of come back to where they launched from and, you know, what was happening is these things were flying and they flew west. And first of all, again, you have these things that can just hover without any sound, you know, without any, any visible propulsion mechanism. And, and they kept heading out, you know, heading west instead of coming back. So it didn't fit any of the characteristics. But, but what's really interesting about that case that hasn't really made much media attention is the, the eyewitness testimonies from, from crew members that were actually, you know, above deck witnessing these things. And what they report was that, the, and this sounds like it's straight out of a science fiction movie, but they were reporting beams, like that the sky would light up as bright as day, a green, kind of a green lit sky that was just, you know, clear as day, except, you know, green. And, you know, we don't know any drones that do that. And we don't know why they would do that. And and how would they have the capability to to light things like that? When there's encounters with these objects, and this goes back since the very beginning, the, the encounters surrounding the, the sources and form of light are always unique. It, it's not just light. It's light that we don't really know how to reproduce. It does interesting things. We don't understand it. And so you have eyewitness testimonies as recently as 2019 with that. You also have fighter pilots. uh, Ryan Graves who's amazing. He's got a a podcast now called Merged, which is fantastic. You know, he's a fighter pilot on the East Coast and with the gimbal video. So for those of you that have seen the gimbal video, um, or if you haven't, check that out. That was another one that was, you know, acknowledged by the Department of Defense. They filmed a a UFO effectively rotating at 120 knots, you know, in, in U.S. airspace and what our fighter pilots on the east coast are saying and multiple multiple fighter pilots are saying this is that they are encountering they're encountering UFOs on a daily basis this isn't like hey once a year it's on a daily basis they've had stuff they've been flying in formation they've had UFOs fly right between the wings of two two fighter jets and you know and there's been reports on this because of the concern for flight safety for our military personnel um and of course, you know, as Marco Rubio and other senators have been saying, is that, hey, we have stuff over U.S. airspace and we clearly don't seem
2: to be able to control it or know what it is. So are those incidents, the ones that I tried to, uh, again, in my brief uh, period of research, are those the ones that happens around February 2019 uh, around something called the Oceana base or W-72, or is that actually even different
0: Um I, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with. Uh...
2: No, I just uh, I just uh, you know found something where they were talking about you know F-18 pilots you know taking pictures on their iPhones, etc., etc. And but it all surrounded this Oceana Base uh, W-72 area, which is on the east coast of the U.S. But, um, anyways, I mean, sounds like that might. So, so you're not familiar with any of that Oceana Base specifically that I picked up here.
0: I'm not familiar with the the Vase, base, but it's probably around the same incidents because there were there, there there were a whole bunch around that same period.
2: Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the people. You've mentioned a couple of names. We're going to do that later, um, but I do think there's a couple of other kind of uh, not just events, but also um, terminologies that I would love for you to talk a little bit about. And one of them is something I guess that's been around for for a long time in in the um, in the narrative at least, and that's Area 51. Um, can, can you talk about, you know, what, what we know and what we don't know about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, Area 51 has is, is certainly made its way into, you know, global pop culture because, again, you know, people associate it with, with UFOs. But very few people know the reason that it's associated with UFOs. So Area, area 51 was, you know, effectively a, a U.S. secret base. That's, that's fact. That's not, you know, conspiracy. The U.S. secret base, and that's where we tested, and many would claim that we still do, some of our absolutely, you know, top secret, you know, best aircraft. The SR-71, which, you know, came out in 1969, um, was originally being tested and flown out of there. You know, one of the fastest, you know, pieces of of aircraft that's ever been built, an amazing piece of technology. And so, so Area 51 was known for, you know, kind of our top secret development. And what happened was, what really put Area 51 on the map was uh, Bob Lazar. So Bob Lazar was a physicist that purportedly worked at Area 51 and was working on propulsion systems of craft from, you know, off-world craft that had been recovered. And he was tasked with sorting out how did the propulsion systems for these UFOs work. And he claimed that in the hangar that he worked at, he had seen nine different craft that, uh, that the U.S. military had in its possession. And he came out, he was very scared for his life. George Knapp, a, a reporter and investigator in Las Vegas, actually broke that story. And, you know, and Bob Lazar, a young physicist, tells the story of what he was working on. Before that, nobody knew what Area 51 was, Groom Lake, S, uh, SS4, which was out the S4, which was one of the areas that he worked in. Um, and he went out there. He took video recordings later from the mountain bridges, And you would see weird stuff, just, you know, lights just shooting up straight into the to the air, flying around, coming back. And um, as we know, Area 51 was later expanded. So, you know, you used to be able to get a lot closer and kind of see some of the stuff from the mountain ridges. And then they expanded that so that, you know, to keep the public uh, public out. So that's kind of generated this 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 mystery and intrigue around uh, Area 51. But it is a real place. And, you know, there's real things going on out there.
2: Okay, cool. Yeah, and you already brought up one of the people I wanted to uh, ask about, so that's a good thing. But before we get to more of the people, there are two other, quote-unquote, events that I just wanted to ask you a little bit about. Danny, that is one that takes place in Mosul, so that's Iraq, um, in April 2016. Um, what happened in Mosul?
0: Yeah, so this is recent. Jer- Jeremy Corbell's the expert on that. So Jeremy Corbell had this uh, this image that was released to him. And my understanding is that this image is a still shot from a video. And I believe the video is a couple minutes long, but effectively a, a metallic looking sphere over a conflict zone in Mosul uh, was was taken by one of our, you know, spy craft. And Right, and, because it's a it,
2: Pentagon video, right? It's not just yes, any video. It's a Pentagon video. Yeah, okay.
0: Correct. And this is the key. There's been a handful of people that have you know, done a great job of, of getting information released that is coming from the Pentagon, the DOD, um, from different, you know, branches of our, our US military. Uh, Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp are, is, you know, is one group, and then you have Tom DeLong and Chris Mellon uh, and Lou Elizondo, which is, you know, another group. Um, but all of them have done just an amazing, amazing job with, you know, getting information released and, you know, and having witnesses come forward.
2: Okay, cool. Final question before we go into some of these people in a little bit more depth, and that is, New York Times breaks a story. I think in December two thousand and nineteen. Tell me first of all if that's the right time, but also what what's significant about this, uh, as, as, as as you can tell. Yeah, I believe it's December uh, twenty
0: seventeen was the first New York Times article, and and that yeah, and that's when it that's when it hit our radar. Um, you know, no pun intended. So I, I remember I was actually home in Miami for, um, for Christmas and, you know, this New York Times article comes out and it made some of the mainstream, you know, news rounds, but then also died off very quickly because we were heading into the to the Christmas holidays. But what was fascinating about the New York Times article was a few key points. Number one, it was revealed that there was a government program called ATIP that was actually funded and studying, you know, UFOs. And this was something that had been, you know, funded by Harry Reid, so Senator Harry Reid, who's, you know, since passed away. Um, and it's it, it's important to mention. A lot of people don't know, or maybe have not heard of what the Gang of Eight in Congress are. The gang of the Gang of Eight are, you know, you have eight congressmen or women. That are able to be read on to to secret programs. So it's there's only eight. They're not allowed to share that information with anybody else. When they meet, they have to meet in a you know in a skiff in and you know which is a secure facility to have you know top secret information passed to them. So so Harry Reid was part of the Gang of Eight at that time, and he had provided funding for this program to to study. And what was going on, and that's where this information was coming from. So effectively, uh, the New York Times broke that article, and that's where we all kind of got introduced for the first time to to Lou Elizondo, who was in charge of uh, the A Tip program, and subsequently quit because he didn't feel that there was enough disclosure and didn't feel that there was enough taking the matter serious as you know a potential threat to you know U.S. airspace and into the United States.
2: Okay, fascinating. I didn't know about that. Okay, so I want to go back, and just for people to get the context, because I think sometimes it can be difficult to fully understand. So you mentioned Bob Lassar, and you mentioned him revealing stuff um, to George Knapp, but 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 this is a long, long time ago, as I understand, right? This is not recent. This is like thirty years ago or something like that. Is that correct? Or yeah,
0: every bit. I think it was the the eighties. Yeah. Yeah, late late 80, 89 or, or 90 yeah.
2: thereabouts. Yeah.
0: So Bob Lazar has been a controversial uh, character in the, you know, in the UFO history. And it, it's interesting. I, I encourage everybody to study up on it. If they find this subject interesting, watch the movie about him that Jeremy Corbell did and, and form your own opinion. I remember, I remember when his story first broke. My, my dad was watching it and... So so, first, I would start with let's you know let's go back to the to the origin story. He was a physicist and he came forward and said, "I'm working on some some pretty wild stuff. I'm working on uFO propulsion and george knapp for for those that may not be familiar with George Knapp, George Knapp is a very serious guy now he's he's followed and tracked you know." The UFO phenomenon and, and paranormal activity around it—you know—pretty much is his whole career. But his career as an investigative, you know, journalist and you know, presenter on on television is very serious. I mean, he's he's tracked stuff—you know—normal things, you know, corruption in Las Vegas, you know, mob-related activity, you know, murder cases. He, he's a very serious guy, and. When Bob Lazar's uh, story first came forward, I can't remember the person that introduced him to Bob Lazar, but it wasn't like Bob Lazar just picked up the phone and called the media. There was there was somebody in between them that had said, "Hey, listen, I think this is important. I think that it's serious," and encouraged George Knapp to sit down with him. And so George Knapp got into his story and and found it compelling. And again, remember, nobody knew Area 51 even existed. So so when you start doing kind of the investigative piece. And you're checking it out. It starts checking these boxes. You have this guy telling this, you know, fantastic story, and obviously that that requires some investigation. And piece by piece, George Knapp was able to verify the things that he was saying. And Jeremy Corbell, who's who's kind of George Knapp's protege, um, continued that recently. So in the last five years, they did a documentary on uh, on Bob Lazar. Now, the reason Bob Lazar is a bit controversial is because. Later in his life, he got himself in trouble and I think he got arrested, you know, as part of some sort of prostitution ring, something really silly out in Las Las Vegas. And so people have taken that and said, oh, this guy, he's not credible or anything else. Well... You know, listen, yeah, he's, he's, he's an idiot if he got himself busted in a prostitution ring, but that doesn't take away from, you know, his narrative about being a physicist, working on, you know, Area 51, you know, being able to substantiate that. Jeremy Corbell was able to find a, a security guard officer that was in charge of people coming in and out of the base and verified that Bob Lazar was actually there when he said he was. So I, I think that he he has a lot of credibility on that topic. Maybe the rest of his life is a bit of a disaster, but that's, you know, you got to kind of segregate the, those two things um, and hear out what he has to say. But fascinating, fascinating story uh, yeah, that no, he shares.
2: I, 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 absolutely, and and I think actually also to, to be completely balanced about it, I think the other thing that they found was that he had lied about his educational history, and they also tried to um, discredit him for that. But I think your, your, your point about that other people, and now maybe with more openness, have actually kind of confirmed the stuff he's told, he said about these things, you know, makes it interesting. Okay, so you've also, so you, again, just going maybe, you know, I wouldn't say chronological order, because that's, that's hard for me when I don't know much about the topic, but Harry Reid, you're right, interesting. Obviously, most people will know him, uh, you know, former majority leader of the US Senate, blah, blah, blah. But he actually also has a connection to George Knapp. Again, confirming your, uh, in a sense, your description about his seriousness, because I think they go back like also about 30 years. But of course, the seriousness, as I can tell, uh, about George Knapp is that he's very good at keeping stuff confidential. If he's told it's confidential, he's not going to reveal it until it's allowed. And so many of these relationships have been there for a while, but has never been talked about, if I'm understanding correctly.
0: Yeah, that's correct. Urzhenap's a he's he's a pro. He, he protects and respects his sources. And because he's, he's covered some pretty serious stuff, um, he's built a good reputation for those things. So there's there's definitely a bit of a nexus point with Nevada because Area 51 is is there. You know, a lot of our nuclear testing was you know out in the desert, Nevada, Utah, and, and you know New Mexico. Um, so a lot of the UFO encounters and stories, you know, not coincidentally, are are related to that area of the United States. Um, certainly not only that area, but the, a lot of things around there. So one of the connection points between George Knapp and, and Harry Reid is a gentleman named Robert Bigelow. So Robert Bigelow had an aerospace company and he was convinced as well that there were, you know, strange things going on. And he's he's a bit of a recluse, but he did a 60-minute video many years ago and he was asked point blank, you know, what do, what do you think is going on? And he believes that, you know, we have aliens that are here that are visiting us with advanced technology. And again, I know that this sounds, we, we have to go back to the stigma you know somebody on your show here saying yeah we've got aliens and everything else it sounds it sounds silly but when we take a step back let, take that macro view for a moment is it is it is it, is it really preposterous that, that that would be happening you know as many people have suggested that's always been happening right anybody that's watched the ancient alien series on you know history channel which is a bit dramatized you know we have you know things that suggest this has been going on for a very long time. And to us, you know, to me, that's that's actually, you know, logical that it would be. Long story short, returning to Bigelow, is that it was Bigelow's aerospace uh, company that was actually funded by Harry Reid. So there's $22 million in funds, and this is part of what came out in the 2017 New York Times uh, article. So he actually had formed a team that was involved in, in investigating these things um, much of that information, by the way, still has not yet been uh, disclosed. So it'd be very interesting to see some of the additional things that, that came from that, because what is telling is that Harry Reid had um, worked very hard to, to have that program that was funded uh, designated a, a secret access program. And one of the reasons that he wanted to have that done as a uh, secret access program is so that he could give them more access to investigate other secret access programs, including trying to get access to what Lockheed Martin is sitting on.
2: Right. Yeah, we'll, we, we'll come to that for sure. Um, now, it's interesting you say this thing that people might think that here we are, two people. Talking about things that are completely crazy. And I, th- I did think about before we press record that this is either gonna be the most popular episode we ever released or the or the least <laughs> episode. The the <laughs> right. So so we we won't know. I, I'm hoping for the former. Now okay, so we talked about Harry Reid, Bob Lassard, George Knapp. And we talked about Area 51, and there is not, not connecting all of these, but connecting Area 51 with George Knapp is definitely this guy that I picked up on called, uh well, he's called Alfred, o, or he's named Alfred O'Donnell, called Al O'Donnell, and he worked at a company called E&G, which I think came out of MIT in the 70s, I'm not sure, but they're about... Can you tell me something about uh, Al O'Donnell and, and why he may, may may be important as well in, in this story?
0: Yeah, it's funny. I, you, you'd mentioned that name. I was not uh, familiar with him. You know, my my team. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have to look. You've given me some homework to, to check out. You know, we know some of the other people that were involved with that. Um, Eric Davis. Um, yeah, of course, Hal Putoff. Is as well as some other uh, investigators that were with that, but that wasn't a name that that I recognized off off the top of my uh, my head.
2: Okay, so let me tell you what what I found out. Um, this is interesting. So what I found out was that this EENG company was actually the company that was paid to run Area Fifty One, and he was the general manager uh, of it, and therefore he had access and was there and. And my understanding was there was very few people with that kind of access. And apparently, according to George Knapp, um, they become, well, his son who is, so he has two sons who are both, um, one is in public service, so uh, elected official. um, And the other one also had a job where you would say, yeah, that seems pretty credible. Anyway, so the son um, connects his father with George Knapp. And they meet over a period of time, a number of times, and uh, it, it, you know, and, and he does share, uh, according to George Knapp, that yes, in Area Fifty One, there are, um, I don't know what we call them. I don't, I don't want to call them aliens because we don't know what they are. But there are things that fly inside of these uh, objects, um, and um, at, we ha- we have them. Oh, I say we. I mean, the U.S. government have them. So then then what my understanding is that after a few of these conversations, so to speak, and these are happening uh, probably a while back, um, he suddenly says, you know, I can't talk to you anymore, la, 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 la. And George Knapp also says that a number of people, because he was very public about asking for information, uh, basically, quote-unquote, get silenced, threatened that don't speak with this guy anymore, and so on and so forth. But Al O'Donnell apparently had promised to record what he knew on video before he passed away because he was an elderly gentleman. So whether that tape exists or not, I don't know. George Knapp thinks that maybe one of his sons has it, but I, I, I have no idea. So anyways, that's that's the story, and that's why he's interesting because of Area 51 and pe- pe- few people with access. He was one of them, it seems. Anyways, the other thing you mentioned was this thing about, you know, that it might be a little bit crazy hearing people talk about... UFOs. And I did come across um actually a former Canadian defense minister, Paul um H-Holier, I think, or something like that, who, and this is many years, this is like a decade ago, came out saying that um that that we, we the US knows that there essentially are UFOs and and they've even developed some kind of energy uh from using some of that technology. And and I can't remember he also went on to say that that they had also found ways to communicate with them or not um but but, but what i also picked up uh, and again from very uh, few um a little time to uh, prepare for this was that he had said something in a speech in 2008 where he had said something like that they want to stop us from destroying ourselves and and i know we're going to jump to that a little bit later but when i read that and this is like you know 12 Uh, 15 years ago i'm thinking could the reason why we're suddenly hearing so much more about it now in 2023 be because we're looks like it we're on our way to destroying ourselves again uh with all the unfortunate conflicts that we have seen anyways that's just pure speculation on my side but i I couldn't help um i couldn't help um I, i agree yeah okay You've talked about David Fravor, uh, the pilot who filmed uh, or were encountered with the Tic Tac, so he's an in, in, important one. I don't know much about this Tom DeLong, um and but I have heard the names Chris Mellon, um Hal Putoff, and and Lou uh, uh, Elizond or uh, I think something mm, like um, Elizond. Um, can you just briefly? Th- why are they important? And and maybe what we start doing because there's one other person we need to talk about. That's Jay Stratton. Uh, and I want to talk, uh, ask you about something called the Wilson Davis memos, which I don't know about, but I've heard you mention it. So can you do chronologically order? Maybe we end with Jay Stratton, because he's important in in the now. I mean, now we bring it all the way to, to now, but, but maybe you can give us a bit of background on the other people.
0: Yeah, so, you know, and I'll preface this, and in, in what I say to everybody when it gets into this subject is that Everybody should expect that there's going to be a very high, you know, noise to signal ratio that, that just goes part and parcel with the the subject matter at, at, at hand. And so what I always encourage people is that, you know, people say, well, you know, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? There's lots. This, this, was, this was the part where it became very interesting to us, you know, getting to investigating this on the professional side. There's lots. We we have metals that are being studied by universities right now that we can't explain how they're you know machined or made. Um, you have, of course, the information's coming out from the Department of Defense. So I, I always encourage people like take your time, work through it. You don't need to take anything you know as is as, as it's presented, but take your time, look into it. It's it's fascinating. So from a from the perspective of Tom DeLong, I mean, I, I tell this story and. To me, it sounded silly. This is, this is you know, this goes back to 2017. This is the crossover point for us taking it serious, you know, professionally and, and saying, what kind of impact is this going to have, you know, on markets, on the world, on humanity? And what happened in 2017 is part of the, the New York Times article is that when these interviews started coming out in the news, there was reference to uh, to the Star's Academy of Arts and Science, which is founded by Tom DeLonge, the, you know, the lead singer for... Uh, the rock band, Blink-182. And I remember at the time just, you know, talking with my family about this and, and, and my team and going, what the hell? What what in the world does Tom DeLong have to do with getting full chain of custody of, you know, UFO videos from the Department of Defense? Like, I, I can't, you know, I can't square that, what's going on here. So here's here's the backstory for, for your audience. So it turns out that Tom DeLong, you know, as he was touring, you know, as a, as a rock star his hobby also, much like mine, you know, just on the hobby side, was UFOs. He he enjoyed the subject matter, read a ton of books on it. And he actually uh, wrote a, um, a fictional book on it, kind of putting together what he thought was, you know, what happened historically. And that book is called Secret Machines. It's actually a pretty entertaining read. And after he wrote the book, People from the from the DOD actually reached out to him. And as he tells the story, you know, he was taking a few clandestine meetings and he m- made this proposal to, you know, folks coming from the intelligence community saying, listen, I I acknowledge that you guys got a tough job. This is pretty serious stuff. And I can imagine that there's really good reason that, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, wouldn't or shouldn't be disclosed to the public. But I believe that the public is mature enough that some of it can and should be. And that's how he tells the story of, you know, how this got going. And that's how he ended up meeting Chris Mellon. Um, Chris Mellon was the secretary um, underneath the Department of uh, Defense. So very, very serious guy. Everybody should look up Chris Mellon. You know, when you see him, this is a very lucid career, you know, intelligence, you know, person. Lou Elizondo, same thing, career in, you know, in in U.S. intelligence, counterintelligence. He ran the ATIP program. And so this kind of these these group of people start coming out, and I remember when we looked up to the stars, you know, Academy of uh, of Arts and Science, and we saw the names of the people that Tom DeLonge had working for him, like how put off. I was just mind blown. I was like, okay, this is super serious stuff. This guy, for whatever reason, you know, don't judge him for being a rock star and not being able to do other things in his life. He 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 connected and he stimulated a conversation. And it's, it's in large, you know, large part, and thanks to, to him doing that, that we have a lot of the disclosure that's rolling out, as well as, and I think this is more important. So when people ask me, like, why now? Like, you, you know, if you followed this your whole life, like, why do you care now? Why is this interesting to you from an investment perspective? It's the momentum. We have legislative momentum. We have disclosure momentum. We have an exponential increase in data and witness testimony from all our military branches. That is what's compelling to me. And again, Tom DeLonge, thanks to him, a lot of that is now kind of bubbling up to the surface where we can all kind of see
2: that um, and start to ponder what's going on. Is it nuclear related or something else? okay, I mean that's cool and and because I think it's a good segue to then go to Jay Stratton you talk about the momentum you're talking about you know uh, across uh, agencies and departments, etc cetera, etc cetera. can you talk about Jay Stratton a bit because I think he's I mean he's obviously current day now like some of the other ones of course, but has even more recently, changed his career so that he can be more open about what, what you know, talking about these things?
0: Jay Stratton's probably, one of the reasons that he's so interesting is because he spent a career in the intelligence field and he has consistently for many, many, many years worked across these various programs. So, you know, we had ATIP. Before that, it was... Uh, U A Swapper, a very unusual name. There's all these acronyms that have been used as these programs. Yeah, kind the of...
2: Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Application Program. There you go. See, yeah, now you're now
0: now you're you're up to speed as well. So so he's been involved with all these programs, which is unique, right? And he's he's taking a stance. In fact, he's you know he's with Jeremy Corbell and uh, George Knapp. Just yesterday, they were you know presenting out in in California. Um, and doing, you know, a QA and a session on, on this topic. So I, I think the biggest thing that, that Jay Stratton brings to the table is that he's kind of the one guy that, as an intelligence officer, has been across so many of these programs. He's the one person, at least so far, that's been identified that has been involved with, you know, multiple iterations of these, these programs. And he's taking a, a, a more recent stance, as, as you alluded to, to, to kind of open these things up to say, hey, this is a conversation, this is information that we need to bring forward. We do need to try and declassify as much as is reasonable um, without disclosing sources and methods that would you know make us vulnerable. We do need to get this information out there. So he's become a, a very important uh, character in this, both historically and absolutely in the present because of his, his current access um, and his current position on the subject matter.
2: Yeah, because my understanding was also that um, and I don't know what year this is, but this is within the last few years that he again was asked to set up another kind of task force or whatever. But in th- it, but at that time, he basically insisted and said, "Yeah, but if I'm going to do that, I need to have access to all the other departments, from the FBI to whatever they're called, all these acronyms, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And he kind of built that network of people. He didn't call it a task force. I think he called it partnerships with these. Uh, with these various, uh, but but that that is of course even to someone uh, an outsider like me, um, that that sounds um, interesting because I'm sure because of the secrecy, a lot of this has been going on without the left hand knowing what the right hand is doing and so on and so forth. So and now I think he's moved on to to a private company. My understanding is which allows him to to not you uh, to open up as as you rightly uh, as we rightly say now the final thing i just wanted to mention that i think well i do want to get to the wilson davies memo just to, just so i know what it is but before um one thing um and that is what also seems to be happening right now you talked about the legislative momentum it seems to me now that um and i don't know the details but you probably do that there are now Laws coming into place where you have like a whistleblower program where people are protected if they come forward, and it's almost like, well, if you worked on any of these secret programs, you now have to come forward. There's no choice anymore, and that's obviously a major shift from you can't talk about this ever, and we'll you know we'll and and now you have to talk about this. Um, is that correctly understood?
0: Yeah, this was this was a big advancement forward. If you compare the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act versus the 23, one of the biggest improvements on that was the protection for whistleblowers. And and this is this is a game changer. This is, again, what we talk about and what we look at is momentum. So, you know, it, it's not good enough to just, you know, have a trend, you know. UFOs have been trending forever. There's nothing new about that. But you need a catalyst, right? What's the catalyst that something different is going to happen or there's there's going to be a shift? And the ability for people from secret access programs, you know, retired or present to, to come forward and report information is stunning. And what, what is being told, you know, the guys that have helped to bring these people forward, you know, in the past, you know, again, Lou Elizondo, you know, George Knapp, they're out there on podcasts presently, and they're saying, we have people. They're coming forward right now. They're already in conversation. They're having conversations with, with Arrow, which is the, you know, the all domain anomalous uh, reporting office. Um, as well as directly with, you know, members of our, our, our Congress. And this is where it gets interesting, too. I would mentioned this on some, some other shows is that we also think there's a bit of a, a game theory aspect to this politically, right? So if you're a politician, you know, and you've, you've got an aspiring, you know, career path to pursue... And you're being privy to these things that are not yet made available to the American public. And several congressmen and women have been. So even without being part of the Gang of Eight, you know, they're seeing stuff, you know, sitting on these committees. They're seeing videos. There's a high-definition video of a UFO that's 23 minutes long. Hasn't been released yet. But congressmen are coming out, seeing that video and saying, you know, it seems like something out of Star Wars. So you now have this also political kind of who's going to move first, Who's going to say something first? And you can see it. If you see the narrative, if you look at, you know, Congressman Marco Rubio is a great example, they're talking about this and you can see the pace picking up with that. Because, I mean, how often are you going to get something that's so mind bending as a subject to bring forward and and take a political stance on that that looks like you're helping open that up? So we think the toothpaste is out of the the canister and, you know, it's it's not going to be easy to get back into it. And um, And that's exciting.
2: Okay. Final question on these um, kind of um, people and 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 uh, um, and events, and, and that's this uh, Wilson Davis memo. Just because I heard you n- mention it, but I actually don't have no clue what it is. Uh, can you share with that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so a little background on this: the Wilson Davis uh, memo was a document that was allegedly written by Eric Davis, Doctor Eric Davis, and he was a scientist that was working for a private aerospace uh, contractor called uh, EarthTech International. And the, the memo is said to be a summary of a conversation that took place between him and Admiral Thomas Wilson, who was the former director of defense intel, uh, of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And this was in 2002. So what's, what's fascinating about this is that according to the memo, Admiral Wilson had attempted to gain access to a highly classified UFO-related program, and he was denied by officials in the special access program. So this is, this is interesting. I, I want to kind of repeat this for the audience. This is somebody that at the time is the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and they are being denied access to a special access program related to UFOs. And so Dr. Eric Davis was, you know, had kind of recorded this, and this is what the memo is about. And what was interesting about some of the details of what the conversation was, is that the the secret access program supposedly was involved in the recovery, and this is a quote of, off-world vehicles, not made on this Earth, that is a quote in the memo. Okay, and so you know, there's there's controversy as to whether or not the you know the memo is is authentic or not. You know, people that are experts on this have you know said absolutely that it is. But what's interesting is that memo is now part of the congressional record. So when we had a a, a hearing about UFOs uh, last year, the first in more than fifty years in the United States. This was introduced, it didn't get covered, they didn't really get into the subject, but it was introduced and submitted, and so it's now part of the congressional record. And we expect that that is going to be a significant conversation in Congress and in the public, you know, this year. And that's going to get very, very interesting.
2: Very good, very good. Now, we've talked a lot about what, quote-unquote, we know, meaning the West, really meaning the U.S., right? Right. Um, And what's also interesting to me is that apparently there's now, there's momentum, there's going to be more hearings, I'm sure. But of course, we're, you know, that we're just one small part of this globe. And so there's probably other countries, nations, superpowers that have had some similar experiences. You would think they just don't seem to talk up. <laughs> they just don't seem to talk about it in hearings that we can participate in. So I'm I'm curious uh, here. I'm thinking about the Russians, maybe the Chinese. But what do we know, if anything, about their experiences? From what again I've heard, and I've obviously listened to some of the sources you've you've been uh, talking about here from what I've heard is, you know, so I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, so I think there's been a report out recently in the US that talked about 144 sightings or encounters or something like that. But then uh, in Russia, I heard, uh, this came from George Knapp, um, that they've had, from his work over many months with Russian sources, they had something like 45 encounters of which three of them turned into, maybe the other ones did as well, I don't know, but there were three of them where these spaceships fired back and they all, you know, they, they took out the Russians' uh, fighter jets essentially very easily. So, but anyways, I'm just paraphrasing what I've uh, listened to. Uh, what, what do you know uh, about other countries' uh, experience in this field?
0: I mean, it's amazing. There's, there's a lot, and, and there's a lot that's open, you know, so... You know, after, the, after the, the Cold War, you know, Russia opened up. And what was interesting, there's a there's a great book called UFOs and Nukes by Robert Hastings, which is probably the best documented, um, you know, book on incidents involving UFOs over, you know, nuclear sites. And this is something guaranteed, guaranteed in our opinion. Look, you, you know, part of what we do is we take data and part of what we do, it's, it's professional speculation right so you got to kind of marry those things together and, and 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 form a view um but what you had mentioned earlier is we have a very strong view that there is absolutely a direct correlation between what's happening with current sightings and nuclear conflict versus the last time that we had such an explosion in sightings and nuclear conflict this to us is not a you know not uh not by accident And so what what George Knapp had, had found out, he did a lot of reporting on this after the, you know, the wall fell. And he found out that what was fascinating is that the Russians were having similar incidents with UFOs coming over their nuclear bases as we were. And they thought that it was maybe advanced technology from the Americans. And we thought that maybe it was advanced technology from the Russians. And then afterwards, we're like, oh, wait a minute. Well, it wasn't you. It wasn't me. Well, what the hell was that, right? And then if you go to, you know, incidents in Japan, there's been lots of incidents in Japan. I mean, there's basically been incidents worldwide, but there's places that are very open about it. Brazil, fantastic. Brazil's always been very, very, very open and treated, you know, ufology as a a sincere, real, you know, discipline. Um, There's a fantastic case out of uh, Brazil that was in 1996, the Virginia case. Um, Which is amazing. There's a a fantastic documentary called uh, moment of contact that was released last year and it's kind of the Roswell case of Brazil and a UFO crashed beings were seen beings were captured and the US Air Force came down and recovered the craft and took the beings There's eyewitness testimonies. It's I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating uh, case out of Brazil and Brazil's had tons of cases. So this is a, you know, this is absolutely something that, you know, there's, there's information out there. The Chinese as well. Previously, the Chinese were before Xi, there were, you know, several, you know, kind of conferences on this subject, and it was a bit more open with the universities there. They announced last year that, you know, they were picking up radio signals from, you know, from other planets suggestive of, you know, uh, extraterrestrial life. You've got NASA back on this stuff. So Again, this is kind of that that momentum. There's been historical, you know, things previously, but I think you're gonna see a a race uh, this year for lots of countries. By the way, on this point, I I don't remember, I think it's gonna be later in this year, um, the United Nations is gonna open this up. So the United Nations is gonna have a, you know, have an actual, you know, conversation on this. And you might see this, you know, turn into, you know, a, a very sincere, you know, global conversation amongst countries.
2: Now let's bring it up to um, to date in a sense that before we talk more about the wine now perhaps what's up with the balloons because the balloons don't really seem to be um, that those uh, the, the, how should I put it um, sophisticated <laughs> so um, so what what how do they play into all of this in your opinion I think that most importantly it it has
0: created a situation that you know, global media and U.S. media in particular really need to lean into to to the White House and get some questions answered. And there's a fantastic investigative journalist uh, out of Australia, Ross Coulthard, who wrote the book uh, In Plain Sight, and he's been leaning into this as well. So, you know, we shot down four things. Only one do we know what it is. What are the other three? How are we supposed to believe that, that, We've shot four things down first time in U.S. airspace ever. NORAD command is involved, and we can't recover. We don't know what the other three things were. That, that's just completely, completely implausible. We could send a helicopter. We could send our own drones down. We can send people by foot. We can send, you know, any number of resources. We're the strongest military on the planet, and we've shot things down over U.S. airspace, and we're not able to tell the public what they were so and again i'm not suggesting that those things that we shot down were alien spacecraft they very well may not have been they might have been advanced drones we don't know but it's concerning that all of a sudden you know a topic that has been going on for the last couple years because of these programs like we know that our defense agencies are supposed to be taking this stuff serious we know that behind the scenes they do take it serious and yet the the excuse to the public is that they just kind of tweaked their radar systems, and so now they're picking up balloons and and, and other stuff. nonsense and i don't I don't believe that for a second, and I think that you know the the public needs to continue to lean into the White House and, and demand you know demand answers.
2: Yeah, no, it does seem very uh, very odd. Now we've all I mean so obviously a lot of what we've talked about today, uh, David, is kind of factual we've talked about real people we've talked about real incidents that are well documented we haven't really speculated a lot we've just tried to provide some 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 context and some 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 facts now we speculate a little bit more when we ask the question why is this happening now and both you and I've already alluded to the fact that maybe it has something to do with what's going on um in terms of the Hotting up of the conflict and so on and so forth, but could there be? I'm just curious. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, could there be other reasons why now, in your in your opinion, having studied this a bit much more?
0: Yeah. So you know, our favorite is the the, the nuclear connection. We we believe that that's that's very logical. Um, but there's there's others. One of the you know one of the ideas you know from our chief technology officer, who's you know very big on this theme as well. He said that look you know we're we're at an inflection point technologically obviously not just for you know nuclear capabilities but also look at what's taking place with this turning point in in artificial intelligence and he said you, you know we know people have made the statement elon musk was saying that he thought that you know artificial intelligence was much much more serious and much more of a risk to humanity than nuclear weapons and so maybe maybe it's this you know technological inflection point with uh, artificial intelligence one of the other theories that personally I, I like and I believe that there's, you know, there's some truth to it is that one of my favorite cases, and there's a documentary on this uh, as well, um, is the 1994 Rua Zimbabwe case. So in the middle of the day over a, over a school called Ariel, a UFO, and this is, there's more than more than 60 eyewitnesses to this, 60 eyewitnesses to this. A UFO literally landed right in the middle of the day in front of a school. These children saw it. They went over. Some beings came out of the the UFO. Kids were later able to to draw this and report it. Um, a famous, you know, Harvard psychologist named John Mack went over and interviewed the children. To you know, he was fascinated by this case. And the documentary goes and re-interviews these children now as a, as adults. Now, what was interesting to me about what was communicated and conveyed to the children as they they reported was they reported you know hearing messages basically communicating telepathically with these beings and this is not uncommon we hear this we hear this a lot this is you know typical of you know encounters uh, that are described but what's interesting is that these children individually reporting the same message that we're not taking care of our planet that you know we're destroying the planet and that the you know it's in danger and you know this was in 1994 you know certainly that hasn't changed you know climate change is a big you know is a big theme our firm is very active in environmental trading so we trade all types of environmental assets renewable energy certificates carbon credits now biodiversity credits so that's another one of our macro themes so i'm a little biased because that's a macro theme that we already have and it's kind of interesting to see that potentially those things are are two themes that may be merging together so you know, some people would speculate that this is a type of of intervention, that, hey, you know, we're about to just completely destroy our our ecosystem, our biosphere, and that requires some type of intervention. That's a possibility. We don't know.
2: No. Interesting. Another thing, um, so last year we had a guest on, uh, Dr. Pippa Malmgren, and we didn't spend any time actually on this particular topic, although she did say, listen, you um, there are so many things going on in space. She wasn't referring to this specific, she was talking to the conflict in space between Russia, China and the US and so on and so forth. But she has written about these things uh, as well. And she's also been asking some questions as to, you know, why might we be hearing about this now? Um, I think some of the stuff she said was, I think she even questioned whether it had something to do with the fact that we are now getting ready to to uh, build bases on the moon, meaning we're now moving into uh, you know another part of the of the universe, so to speak. And and it's kind of funny. I'm Danish by background. It's kind of funny because she wrote uh, something where she said um, and she talks about this starship that can lift hundred ton, whatever that, that that has been built. And she says the starship looks set to carry the danish design three-story space. I didn't even know Danes were capable of designing habitats for for the moon, but anyways, I'm pretty happy to see that. But, I mean, there are, of course, so many reasons why this could be, if it is, I mean, again, and it's, uh, yeah, I guess it it warrants a little bit more... uh, time and 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 consideration i want to finish off with just a, a a few questions uh david you've been very generous with your time what one is if you are going to point to the single best piece of evidence that we have is there anything that kind of springs to mind uh, or can you even identify what you would say yeah i think that's that's the best evidence we have
0: i think that there's lots but i think probably the the best modern one that we have is the the incidents around the USS Nimitz? I think that I think that that's just like if you really get into the details of it and and all the data plus eyewitness testimony, it's just phenomenal. I mean, and it opens up a lot of questions. You know, what's what's going on? And you know, Dr. Pip is amazing. You know, I, I I think that she's absolutely right that there's you know some correlation with what's going on in space, and she's an expert on that. You know, for for sure. I love one of the, you know, the terms that she came up with. You know, we've kind of, you know, teased in in about the term galactic macro, but she uses a much more interesting term, which is exopolitics. So off planet, you know, political, you know, issues, which is 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 brilliant. So I I suspect this is this is, you know, my personal belief. I think what we're going to find is that that we have made breakthroughs in reverse engineering of you know extraterrestrial craft that's actually what i i sincerely believe i think that we have the craft i think that we've had it for a very long time i think that we finally figured out how some of it works i think that there's probably extraordinarily dangerous implications of understanding how that technology works it's not just you know the government blocking you know free energy or anti-gravity machines that would change humanity there's probably very serious implications to you know weaponizing those those technologies, but I think that this information is going to continue to spill out, and it's going to create a very very interesting you know world for us here um, very quickly. So I think we're going to have breakthroughs in space travel that are going to go way beyond anything that SpaceX is doing. SpaceX is going to look like you know a, a horse-drawn carriage uh, versus the tech that we actually are probably already you know capable of deploying.
2: Very, very interesting, um, and certainly I wouldn't rule anything out uh, nowadays. Um, and and actually I wanted to get to that point as well just a, a little bit, which is of course the professional side of your work and and some of the themes you're finding your galactic macro themes. Now you I mean so so just to sort of energy, I guess could be a, an area that could be potentially impacted. you talk about defense. Maybe even travel. I mean, how how long is the list of things where you could see something that none of us can, you know, fathom today, but where, if it's true, and if we have, as you say, and maybe this is why it's coming out now, maybe we it's down to the point where... Uh, the powers above, so to speak, the, the the whatever political elite we have know that this is about to break. This is about to come out, and we either scare the public completely, uh, or we give them a little bit of a kind of a dose by dose kind of a approach to to this. So yeah, what what are the other kind of things that that you could see uh, being impacted?
0: Lots. So, so I'll just throw out just you know various you know sam- samples of this, and and again, so I'll kind of you know, flex our discretionary macro for a moment in the way that we think about these things. So the one that most people have heard me talk about, which is kind of the, you know, the, the fun one, is, you know, being long Lockheed Martin because they're sitting on this technology, right?
2: And and that's that's a real position. So essentially what you're saying is you believe they have one of these spacecrafts in their possession, and they have studied that and are coming out with maybe some new technology soon or based on that, yeah. We,
0: we... Yeah, we believe that they have the technology, that they understand the technology, and that they've built with the technology. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty significant you know, statement. And that's a whole you know, deeper conversation as to, to why we have such strong conviction with that. But in addition to that, so let's say, let's, let's play this out for a second. So let's say that the U.S. is in possession, does understand it, and has built with it, right? So w- what does that do for the U.S. dollar? Well, it certainly is going to strengthen the U.S. dollar. What does that do for being able to protect Taiwan? So maybe you want to be long Taiwan equities because you know now it looks like the U.S. could easily, easily defend Taiwan in a conflict with with China, right? So if if we're the only ones that have it, and hopefully hopefully that's the case, you know that it's not you know widespread because you know that would have some some scary implications. Um, there's all types of things. The energy theme is a very big theme for us. You know, should we be, you know, shorting uranium companies on on every, you know, on every, you know, uptick that they get? I think that you will see some, you know, I think we're going to have breakthroughs in energy very, very, very quickly. Whether that comes from alien spacecraft or, or not um, is to be determined. But I think that we are going to have a very serious conversation about, you know, interesting technology and, and I'll add to this, just something for, for folks to think about from a technological perspective and how these things affect technology investments. There's a, a gentleman, you know, if you look at the Roswell case, there's a gentleman named Lieutenant uh, uh, Corso. He wrote a book about technology that was found. So he was in the, the army and he was tasked with um, studying the reverse engineering and passing some of that technology to private industry. And there's four technologies that he claims came from the Roswell incident, the, from reverse engineering, the integrated circuit, so basically the microchip, lasers, microwave technology and fiber optics. Now think about how much you know, technologies advance for humanity just on those four technologies. And you know, people don't associate those with coming from UFOs, and you know I'm not saying with 100% certainty they did, but they might have. And if they did, you know, you have to kind of, you know, reflect on 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 that trajectory and all the things that kind of you know, changed across markets and, you know, across society because of those those breakthroughs.
2: Yeah, I mean you mentioned and I don't really I don't want to I don't want to speculate too much uh although it's difficult not to on an episode like this. But also, I mean you mentioned this thing about what if the US could protect Taiwan, blah blah blah. Yeah, but I mean, what if <laughs> again some of the uh, countries that we we're not so friendly with actually have similar technology from their uh, experiences because I've I've heard People talk about, I have no idea if this is true or not, you know, things like Russia, they now have like a torpedo that can go 10,000 miles straight into the, you know, from, from Russia to the US. I mean, things like that where you think, okay, that's not normal unless you have something incredible. And so all, all I'm just saying is I think that there is uh, both very positive uh, uh, outcomes that could be, but as you said, there could also be opportunities where you, you want to be short, even though I have no idea. Uh, um, you know how how this is all gonna play out, but I hope we might be able to continue this theme and this conversation, David. So, just a, a couple of um, a couple of questions I wanted to uh, end up with. Um, one, what keep I, I normally would ask this as a manager, and I'm not. I know you manage money, but I, I'm not asking you as a manager. I'm actually more asking you as a observer of all of this. And and that is what, what keeps you up at night when you think about all the stuff that you've come across. I mean, what's is there anything that kind of keeps you up at night, and where you're a little bit worried about this stuff? Oh, that's a
0: great question. Um, you know, what keeps me up at night is that i um, believe it or not, I'm I'm actually optimistic for for what can come about from these things, and and I'm a hundred percent aligned with you in that. Yes, some very scary stuff. So so maybe multiple countries have this technology, um, probably right. And, and maybe that's why we're seeing more actual, you know, encounters with UFOs. Maybe it's other countries, but for sure, there's a high probability that there's stuff coming onto the planet, you know, from elsewhere. And maybe that's part of the intervention. But what, what keeps me up at night is, is probably the excitement that, that we're going to stimulate curiosity in, in you know, our present generation that's much needed. We we have, you know, our current generation is just completely distracted with, you know, TikTok, social media. There's an article the other day describing how, you know, Gen Z doesn't even know how to use technology in the workplace. And, you know, just because they know how to use social media, they're actually like failing to use basic technology in the in the workplace. And I think that it's, it's fascinating that if all of a sudden we're looking up at the stars rather than looking down at our mobile phones, that that's that's an incredible you know improvement of you know our current state of affairs. So what keeps me up is the the excitement more than the the worry, thankfully. Um, and so I'm 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 very encouraged
2: that you know a, a lot of amazing things are going to come from this. Okay, no, I, I, I like that answer. Now um, this is another question that I tend to ask uh, managers after a, an hour's worth of of conversation, but in this but today I really have to ask you this because. I, I, feel, I felt so unprepared for this topic, but still with a lot of uh, uh, excitement and, and, uh, and really wanted to uh, learn more curiosity, I guess. Um, so I normally would ask people, what should have I asked you? Um, what did I not ask you? Is there any particular point that we missed in our conversation um, that you want to bring up um, before we wrap up?
0: No, you you were you very thorough and I and I appreciate the the open mindedness to to have this kind of conversation. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that, you know, your observation that this doesn't appear to be a conversation anywhere across the the investment space. And and I agree, and I think the the open question, not just from you, but from me is why not? <laughs> like because because if even even one percent of what I'm suggesting is is taking place and and obviously I believe it's a lot more than that and people should should look into it themselves but even just 1% of what I'm saying is 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 actually taking place this is a life-changing conversation it is a market-changing even if you know pr- you don't care about the aliens whatever but you're just a market professional and you got to manage a portfolio every day the implications for this are just you know almost impossible to, to fathom, and they're certainly worthy of starting to think through because it will make waves. Um, so I, I, I appreciate your observation on that, and I think that that's a, a question we can we can both leave open to, you know, the community. Hopefully this dialogue
2: will, will stimulate more people asking that, that very question. And in addition to making waves, David, I hope it makes trends because, as you know, I'm a trend follower. So uh, regardless of whether we know anything about this stuff or not, if there will be trends in markets because of this, I can assure you CTAs and other trend followers will hopefully uh, be able to catch them. Just to make this conversation a little bit um, relevant for my my normal topic. David, this has been a mind-blowing conversation. Thank you so much for doing this today. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm sure our listeners will, and I hope that we manage to make people think about what is going on in the wider world right now, but also why we're suddenly being given all this information at this point in time. And before we go, let me just encourage you to go and follow David's work. Um, I will, of course, put a link in today's show notes, because as you can tell from today's conversation. We're living in a truly unpredictable and ever-changing world and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well informed. From me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.